back, everybody, to the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up in this month's edition, I'm going to be joined by, amongst others, Luke Morley of Thunder, who has joined us to talk about their fine new album. If you've not heard it, you should have done. It's called All the Right Noises. Elsewhere, we've got a feature on Asia. Uh, they're about to release a new box set of the reunion albums. And we're also going to be featuring a band we don't really feature often enough. Uh, they tend to be overlooked, especially when there's any discussion about the great British rock bands of the 1970s. And they are still very much with us today. They're called, of course, Uriah Heep. This year is the 50th anniversary of Look As Yourself. We'll hear a track from that. And we're going to hear from the legendary man himself, Mr. Uriah Heep, Mick Box. And he's going to be telling us what his favourite five Uriah Heep albums are. On top of all of that, we have some fine new music as well. Moody Blues icon John Lodge has a new single out. We're going to be hearing that. Kansas have got a brand new live album out next week. We're going to be hearing tracks from that as well. But to begin, here's a candidate for album of the year. Cheap Trick. Their latest album has just been released. It's called Another World. Easily the best thing they've done in a long, long time. They roll on continuing never to disappoint. And I could have picked any track off of this album, such as the quality runs right the way through it. In the end, I've chosen not the most raucous track, but one of the songs on the album that just has a classic cheap trick feel.
Just a fabulous album from start to finish. Great album, great band. Nothing else to say, really, apart from uh, Rick, if you're, if you're listening. Do, do respond to emails and pick up your phone. Uh, now, the power to surprise. How many of you listened to Kansas' last album, The Absence of Presence, and thought this is one of the year's biggest surprises? Ronnie Platt doing an outstanding job on that album. We're going to be talking to him in the next show. Kansas have got a brand new live album out next week. It is called Point of No Return, Live and Beyond. And as a teaser, here is a track from it. And I'll, uh, I'll let Ronnie introduce it. Once again, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Point of No Return 40th Anniversary Tour. Including the acoustic set that we did for you guys and the, the set that we're going to do for you right now. We're, we're pulling songs from about 10 different Kansas records, so we hope you enjoy that. And then at, uh, on in the show, we're going to do the Point of No Return in its entirety and its running order. So are you ready for that? Thank you for coming. Good evening and welcome to Kansas. Here we go.
rock bands of the last 30 years discuss top of the list thunder who's since getting together in 1989 and then releasing their first album backstreet symphony in 1990 have managed to navigate all trends and fashions of the times whilst building a very loyal following and managing to produce consistently good albums in tandem with live performances that few really could actually get out there and equal, be it outside of festivals or on the indoor arena circuit. Now, they've got a new album out. It is called All the Right Noises. It is perhaps their best work since Laughing on Judgment Day. Luke Morley joined me to talk about the album and their career. But to start, here's one of the best tracks on the album. It's called Destruction. in the shadows with a fast beating heart praying all of your fears they don't come out of the dark the clock's in Break you 
I think it's fair to say that you're now classified as national treasures, really, aren't you? It's not an award or something you get due to huge numbers of Twitter followers. I think it comes from the recognition of years of hard work and the general honesty and integrity in what you do. You've got great levels of affection from all of the fans that follow you. And you rarely, if ever, see anything negative written about you. So how does it actually feel to be held in such high esteem? Um, I think the fact that we've been around so long um, is, uh, I suppose, a testament to the fact that we... Um, uh, we have a great relationship with our fans because um, I think that, you know, as far as the mainstream mainstream media outlets go, we, we don't get that much coverage, but we have a, a very, very loyal and dedicated fan base. Um, and we just kind of, we're like, um, you know, I, I, I sometimes I, I scratch my head and wonder about it because we're very, very fortunate to have it. I mean, yeah, all musicians, I mean, it's a precarious career at the best of times and all of us want to be in a position where we can... Uh, make a living doing something we love um, and we're very very lucky that we can and that it's been as long as it has you know 30 odd years it's quite something and um, you know that's stuck aside it's down to the the, the fans it's 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 really um, nothing much to do with us we just do it we just make records and tour and do what we do and hope enough people like it to keep us uh, in living you know now, since the return to active service with Wonder Days was a good album. Rip It Up was a great album. Please Remain Seated was different, but it was still a successful album, the acoustic one. But I think when we sit and listen to All the Right Noises, it's clearly the best thing you've done since Laughing on Judgment Day. Now, is this the album that you have been looking to make since Laughing on Judgment Day? Um, I think uh, it's it's a very difficult to analyse one's own work that way. Um, I mean, I you know we're all very proud of it, and we we think it's uh, a, a good album, and we've had to live with it um, for a year after you know completion to release because of COVID and stuff. So it's been kind of you know I'm, it's really funny talking about a record that that I finished writing you know a year and a half ago, but here we are. Um, but it, it's a good album. Um, I think. Part of the reason might be that, um, as the person that write, writes the songs, I, it's come along at a time when there's been so many fantastic, well not fantastic, unbelievable things happening in the world. There's been no shortage of stuff to write about. And I think that's the thing with me. It's, if I've got plenty to write about, or if stuff makes me feel strongly about it, then uh, I tend to get a lot more prolific. And, and, uh, and you know, it kind of coincided with coming off the back of, as you say, a more gentle kind of acoustic album. So there was a lot of energy about the creation of this album. And it's all things are timing, you know, things conspire to make, you know, to make you kind of have peaks and stuff in your career. And, and you know, hopefully this will be one of those. Now, there's a lot of the joyfully unexpected here, some fabulous backing sinkers and vocal harmonies. Now, you've always been a real fan of the Beach Boys. Is this something that you've been looking and wanting to introduce and do more of in recent times? I think it's to do with the the songs being able to take it really. Um, you know, as the songs emerge, you, you, you know, I, I have a studio at home which is very good. It allows me to indulge myself in in this sort of you know bizarre sort of sound experiments. And uh, in the past, I've always kind of, you know, looked at the backing vocal aspect of it and thought, well, it probably doesn't need it there. Um, but with this album, 
the songs seem to naturally lend themselves uh, to it and on a couple of the songs particularly uh, I mean we've used female backing vocals in the past but not as featured as they are on um, uh, two because a couple of songs on the album one's called she's a millionaireess uh, um, and the other one's called are you going to be my girl and they're both very very featured uh, and they kind of have an exchange with Danny's voice and it's nice to do that. I mean, I've always loved bands like the Stones, um, you know, who brought that kind of element of soul and stuff into it. And, you know, we've always loved that kind of music. We all grew up listening to soul music as well as rock. So it's nice to be able to kind of inject that back into thunder. Now, you said that you tend to write about what's going through your head at the time. Now, there's a very diverse selection of topics here, Brexit for one. But more interestingly, you're tackling significant issues such as mental health and depression on destruction. Now, were you writing this from any personal attachment to this particular subject? Um, well, um, fortunately for me, I've never really suffered from kind of mental problems um, uh, or depression or that kind of thing. But I do know several people that, that do suffer with it. So it's kind of really um, anecdotal in as much as it's just what, you know, they've told me about how they're feeling and stuff and stuff that I've read. Um, and uh, it, it didn't. I didn't set out to write a song about it, but the, the music. I came up with the music for this one first, and it was kind of dark, and it kind of led me into a into a dark place. And I think it, you know, I had this note about um, you know the possibility of writing about you know those, those kind of you know the darker side of the mind and everything. And the two seemed to marry together quite well. So um, yeah, it just just came together, and then I started thinking about it a bit more and thinking about what people have told me. And uh, yeah, we ended up with the, the song that's quite dark for us. St George's Day is also interesting. Now, you've said in the past that intolerance is one of the things that you dislike intensely. Now, how careful do you have to be as a writer that when you approach difficult subject matter like this, that you don't come across as if you were hectoring or preaching your views to an audience uh well that's difficult <laughs> i mean st george's day lyric took, did take me a long time um because i wanted to sort of phrase it in a way which was you know left everybody in no doubt how i felt but without kind of you know preaching because it's, a, it's an awful thing i can't stand that when you, you know art does that of any variety really i think you should always let, let an audience make its own mind up um but similarly, I think all creative people, when they write, have to write from the heart. And so occasionally you're going to say things that might prove to be unpopular with a, you know, a, a section of your, your, your fans or your, your followers or whatever. But you've got to take that risk because if you don't mean what you're saying, then, you know, you're not, certainly not going to convince anybody else that you're, you're genuine, you know. Young Man is uh, an interesting song here as well. Now you're singing here about being grateful for the times that you grew up in, which for you, I suppose, were the 60s, 70s and a bit of the 1980s. Uh, interesting line, you wouldn't go back if you paid me to, but do you look back now and actually long for a more simple time? Oh, uh, I mean... You know, things change. Everything changes. Technology has has advanced uh, exponentially in my lifetime, and uh, you have to kind of embrace that. There's nothing you can do about it once the genie's out of the bottle. And um, you know, I think what the song is really sort of suggesting is that perhaps um, the time I grew up 
was a slightly more innocent time, and I think people had more uh, privacy. People were in uh, people, you know, you could make mistakes, you could mess up like all young people do, um, and it wasn't plastered all over the internet. Um, and these days, it's terrible for young people. I think the pressure that they, you know, they have to look right, to have the right things, to you know, to have a lot of likes on on Facebook or whatever it is, um, whichever platform they use these days. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, you know, the simplicity of the world sort of 30, 40 years ago meant that you kind of knew what you were dealing with. But all the time now, it seems to me these days, as technology advances, there's more and more is out there in, in the public domain. And perhaps, um, you know, the, the only good thing to come out of COVID is the fact that it's made people kind of contemplate themselves a bit more. Because that you know they've been forced to stay at home and and not socialise as much and uh, maybe ask kind of questions like you know what actually is really important here. Now you have three top ten albums coming into this project. When you look back now, at the time that you were putting this together, you're writing the songs, you're performing on the album, you're producing the album as well. It's a very significant contribution. Again, did you feel any sense of increased pressure to actually maintain these recent high standards and the successes that you've had um not no more than usual um i think you know it's good to you know every every time you know we make a record we do try and sort of make it you know better or different or something we, we can't we it's not in my character to to sort of just repeat and, and uh try and make the same album again every year and go on tour. I, I, you know, there has to be something in it that's challenging for me as a writer, for the band as a band. And um, so, you know, the, whilst you're, you're, you're kind of the, the, the commercial, uh, the degree of commercial pressure is, is always on you. It's on, it's on everybody who makes a living from creative things. So that's always there. Um, and it's good to put pressure on yourself as, as, a, as a writer, I think, because then you never know quite what's going to happen. Um, and it, songwriting is a craft. You want to believe that the more you do it, the better you get. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's best for others to say, but yeah, I think it's. Um, I think it, there's a degree of pressure, but it's always there, I, and I'm sort of used to it, really. Mm. Uh, the the rock star life doesn't usually entail a camera being up at three thirty a.m and having a weekend away in Burnley. But we've got to mention the album cover, which I think, like everybody else, I thought was something uh, from the Storm Vorgesen uh, stable. But it came from uh, a Google search from you for Bizarre Musical Instruments. Yeah, that's correct. Well, as soon as we got the album title, um, all the right noises, I just thought, well, how can we visually kind of do something with that? And, you know, music is, is you know, believed to be noise by some people. So I started sort of looking at it that from that point of view. As you say, Google Bizarre Musical Instruments and the sculpture, which is the singing ringing tree, came up. And the first thing I thought when I looked at it was that looks like a hypnosis album sleeve. And uh, that, which I'm a massive fan. And, and uh, you know, I knew Storm very well. We, he, he worked on two of our album sleeves in the 90s and uh, he, he was a great guy. Um, so I just thought, well, this is cool. This, and I, the more I read about it, the more it felt right. The fact that it was English, the fact that it was on, on a hill overlooking Burnley and, you know, in the north, right in the middle of England. And I just thought this is a really, a really cool idea. And, uh, 
my good friend Jason Joyce, who took the picture, I sent the idea to him. I said, what do you think? And he Googled it. He said, this is fantastic. We've got to go. We've got to go and do it. And uh, yeah, that was it. And we went up there, photographed it, sort of all parts of the day and night. Um, uh, but it was the shot that we got at 3.30 a.m., which was the one. And uh, yeah, it kind of, we didn't even have to scratch our heads about it. It's like we looked at it and went, that's it. That's the one. Fantastic. It was part of a project, actually, I looked into it from the local council to build and create landmarks in open spaces and it actually won an award uh, from the Royal Institute of Architects. Yeah, well, the, the guys who built it, uh, Tonkin Lu is the company's call, um, we, we spoke to them and they were, because we weren't sure, obviously, if they'd be keen on some rock band coming along and using their thing. So... But they were really, really supportive and said, that's absolutely great. Yes, we'd love to help anything you need from us. And they sent us all the schematics about how it was built and all sorts of things. And they were extremely helpful. So that was all good. Danny's talked about the, the process, this new method that you have these days of, of working, where you convene, you have two or three sessions with months in between to fine tune then reconvene again, usually now, always at uh, Rockfield Studios. Is this now your your template that will continue to be used for the foreseeable future? Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely works for us. I mean, I think you, you touched on it earlier, but I think the fact that, that I'm writing the songs and producing and playing means that sometimes I'm not sure which hat I've got on. So the fact that we can record a few songs, go away, gives me a really good chance to, to look at it and go, did we get that? Is that right? You know, does that need tweaking a little bit? Do we need to do this again? You know, those kind of things. And it's difficult when you're, you know, when you, you're attempting to go into the studio and record 15 songs at the same time, you don't have that sort of luxury of, of being able to step back. So, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, obviously we can afford to record that way. And it's, you know, thank, thankfully it, it's, it's it also the, the great thing about it is, is that you're not in the studio for like a big solid lump of time everybody's got lives and things to do. So it's nice to kind of dip in and out. That way it's always fun and exciting when you get there. You're never there kind of too long. So yeah, it definitely works for us. And um, I'm sure moving forwards, we will, if we don't exactly use that method, then it'll be something akin to it. When people talk about the, the band's longevity, a lot of it has got to do with Danny's voice, which has lost not one ounce of its power, or clarity in what 40 odd years do you think that he's actually given the credit that's due because whatever list you put together of the greatest vocalists that these islands have produced over the last 50 years he's he's got to be on it the guy could sing anything he could sing the phone directory well i think you know he's a fantastic singer and, and you know f for me um yeah he's he's right up there with you Plant and the Rogers and and those kind of people um, and I you know I mean I did some work with Robert Palmer in the nineties who's also fantastic and when you're working around good singers um, it, as a writer it's fantastic because everything you throw at them they can cope with they'll find a way to do it um, and, and it's wonderful I mean you when you're on stage you know and you hear his voice kind of ringing throughout the monitors and uh, it's a wonderful thing it just makes everything a lot easier when you've got somebody that can sing properly and uh yeah i think he does deserve a lot more credit than he gets uh but that's the world we live in you know yeah. what um, might surprise people about you is how long that you've actually been at it uh, obviously not as thunder but 
40 years ago, anybody that had been regulars at the Marquee Club, they'd have probably been on drinking terms with you. You were there that often. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, it's funny, actually. Last time I saw uh, Fish, uh, you know, the, the guy that used to sing yeah, from Meridian yeah. now with a great solo career, uh, you know, we met about that time. I think we met about 81, 82, I can't remember, just from propping up the bar in the Marquee. <laughs> and... Um, and we were talking about it last time I saw him, and I, and I told him how many years ago it was. He went, "Oh my God, really? I was, yeah, long, long time." Um, but uh, yeah, it's—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's always been something that I, I wanted to do, and uh, you know, I, I suppose even if I wasn't being paid for it, I'd still do it. Do you remember so, uh, the the time that you got your headline slot after a band called? Nobody knew much about them at that stage. A band called Big Country failed to sell any tickets. Yeah. Uh, yes, we, it was amazing. We'd supported a few people and, you know, put ourselves about about a bit in the club. And so, you know, they were aware of us. And then, as you say, Big Country, not long formed, pulled out. And they rang us and said, do you want the show? So, of course, we leapt at it and just rang all of our mates and, you know, Threatened them with severe violence if they didn't show up, and uh, and we yeah we, we had a bit of a renter crowd in there, and that was it. And then we were a headline act, and, and then we went from that. We went on to do Reading Festival, and uh, it was on one of the that was a, that was an amazing lineup. Reading nineteen eighty two, Bruce Dickinson was appearing with Maiden for the first time. MSG and Budgie, you were first on on the well, not first first groups on with uh, a band called Chinatown and Spider, weren't you on the Sunday? I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, your, your your memory or your research is better than better than my memory anyway. Yes, yeah, so I remember it was you a Sunday, up, didn't you? Well, Terraplane ended up on the on the live album, on the Reading uh, live album, which is still not funny enough. I saw it in a in a second hand record shop a couple of weeks ago. Well, well, yeah, uh, yes, that's right, we did, and uh, from that from that relationship with the. Uh, the Marquee Club, we got our first record deal as well. And, uh, CBS came down and watched us, and that was, uh, I think that was 83 or 84. That was, was that was after you? I was going to say, can you imagine explaining to young bands as today what it was like? You released an independent single as well. You put it out yourselves, and there's this picture I've got of you and Danny driving up and down the motorway network, stopping off in all the uh, record stores that do the chart returns and buying it oh, yeah. to push it into the top 50. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it was our publisher, Bank Rolled Out. He said, right, out you go, lads. This is this is common practice. It's what you do. So, yes, yeah, so off we shot up and down the country uh, buying, buying, buying the single. Uh, I think it got into the chart about 70-something. I can't remember now. Uh, so, But it was interesting because it, 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 it brought some attention on the band that hadn't been there before, and it was all part of the kind of, you know, another rung up the ladder, so to speak. So what is there left for you or the band to achieve that you feel that you might not have achieved yet? Um, oh, dear, I don't know. I, I think uh, we... We never really uh, had a concerted effort at, at breaking America. Uh, events kind of conspired against us, really. It was a bit of timing involved. We, we, although our timing was very good elsewhere, it was awful there because as the band was, I mean, we'd sold, we were in a situation in 91 where we sold a quarter of a million albums over there and uh, our single was all over MTV like a rash. And then grunge happened and it kind of 
blew us out of the water a little bit. All the radio stations changed formats and our label, which was Geffen, um, ironically, uh, Nirvana, they just bought the label Nirvana were on and they, they redirected all their funds towards grunge and so it was a very difficult time. Uh, and it's my only regret actually is that we probably should have gone there anyway under our own steam and, and taken the financial hit and done it, but we didn't. Um, so that, that rankles a bit, but yeah, hey, there you go. Oh, at that time, you were categorised as a hair metal band over in the US, and you stated many times as well that it wasn't quite right. You were more of a, a jeans and T-shirt band. John Kolotner was the guiding force over there working with Geffen, and it did look all systems go, didn't it? Because there was a big tour planned with David yeah. E. Roth and Cinderella ready to go, and then grunge it. It was cancelled, yeah. and that was the end of that. You didn't go. But when you look back at it now, do you think that you should maybe have gone over there anyway That's on your question. own? But what we should have done, because the single was being played in quite a few areas, particularly in the Midwest and in the South, and I think probably what we should have done was we should have independently gone there and played on our own and done clubs and stuff and, and built it up from there, as we had done in the UK and in Europe and everywhere else. But... Uh, we decided not to because there was obviously by that time we you know we sold a lot of records in, in in Europe and Japan there was a lot of pressure on us to go there so that's what we did um uh but you know there's a breaks i mean you know you can't it's the music industry you have to prepare to be disappointed because <laughs> it always you know nothing goes perfectly but you've got to be philosophical about these things isn't it? So 30 plus years of the band, is the high point uh, for you still Donington 1990, the moment that you hit that stage, the sun was shining on 80,000 people and all of a sudden you look up when you play that first note and there's 80,000 hands in the air. Everybody knew you, they knew all the words. Is that it? Yeah, that was a moment. That was a moment. Uh, I think it, it was a... Uh, yeah, because we had no idea how how well known we were because we'd done all these lots and lots of small shows and a few support gigs, and that was the first time we'd gone out in front of a really huge audience. And yeah, the response was just overwhelming. I mean, that, we were on stage for forty five minutes. I, when we came off at the end, it felt like forty five seconds. Um, it was amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, that was definitely a high point. I think you know you have high points throughout, and they're, they're for different things, really. Um, you know, that was that was the point where we sort of arrived. Um, but you know, I get just as much pleasure out of, uh, you know, when, when we tour now, I get on stage, I still enjoy it just as much. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, we only started headlining arenas like four years ago or something, which is peculiar. So that was 25 years into our career. So, um, as I think it was Danny said, you know, we, we tend to take our time getting there. So I, you know, I like to believe that we've still not made our best album. You know, I, you just keep keep trying to keep move forwards and be positive because you never know how the world's going to change around you and that obviously affects Lastly, a lot which is an inevitable question i suppose how have you managed to survive in uh, you and the current guys for as long as you have when you look around and see you know the bands that have broken up the personnel changes here there and everywhere is it to do with what you call the bond that you have between you and Danny, but the whole band. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, it sounds corny, but we are people first. And, um, you know, we, we're good friends. I mean, Danny and I met when we were 11 years old. I've known Harry since I was sort of 17 and Ben since I was 20. So 
we know each other very, very well. Um, and I, you know, over the years, we've s s maintained the ability to be able to laugh at, the, at each other and the world in general. Um, obviously, there's a massive amount of shared experience in growing up and going through all those things together, which you know, and that that helps reinforce the kind of common bond. Um, we're all, you know, I think we're all kind of fairly level-headed people. And we're aware, um, you know, the fact that we're all quite different as people as well, but we give each other our space. Um, but, you know, when we get together, whether it's recording or touring, we still make each other laugh. And uh, it's still like a kind of teenage boys club, which is mad because we're all around 60 now. So, but it's great. Long may it continue. Uh, really. You've got a year, by the way, till the, till the tour starts. Are you, uh, what are you, what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be uh, going through the process of looking at uh, another album, perhaps, or? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, writing is something I always do, so I should, you know, in fact, just today I've been working on some stuff. So yeah, I'll be writing and we'll be trying to put together another album at some point and uh, yeah, and just seeing what happens because, you know, everything is uncertain at the moment, as you know, and, uh, you know, there's talk of maybe festivals in the summer, but we still don't know about that. And, uh, you know, our, our lovely government have told us that after June the 21st, everything will be back to normal. I don't believe that myself. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Um, but I think as we move towards the end of this year, you know, hopefully things will start looking a bit more, uh, a bit more normal. So, you know, when that, when the day comes and I open the venues and stuff, you know, we're, we're like a coiled spring. We're ready to go.
Uriahiv. Perhaps the most overlooked of all of the 70s greats by everybody, that is, apart from their fans. They've recorded 24 studio albums since 1970, which is some catalogue. So, what was the best ever Heap album? No better man to ask, really, than the man who's been there since day one, who is still very much with us today. So, here's Mick Box with his Uriah Heap Top 5. Five Heap albums. Um, that's very difficult, isn't it, you know, over the years. I mean, I, I guess I, I guess the first album, very, very humble, because it established everything. It was the first, and the first is always, you know, exciting, you know. And, and the fact that we, we had sort of all... If you understand that the, Uriah Heap was born out of a band called Spice, which was a four-piece, and the, why we called ourselves Spice was simply because we didn't want our music to be one one flavour. We wanted all different spices, and so we, want, we never wanted to be afraid to hit the folk market, the jazz market, the rock market, the blues market, or whatever. So um, we carried that into Uriah Heap. So that first album has all those flavours on it, and um, I think it's, it's, it's got a charm for it from, from that one. And, of course, Gypsy being the big one on it was which we still play today and has almost become an anthem, you know. I guess I'd have to pick, don't be jumping about here, I'd have to pick Demons and Wizards, of course, because that took us on the world stage. That album, um, you know, with the Easy Living, it just, it really did, as I said, take us on the world stage. You know, suddenly the offers were coming from everywhere, you know, to work, and that was immense, you know. And then you could start getting all the gold albums and all that sort of stuff, you know, those accolades, which was really lovely. And by that time, of course, we were touring the world in, you know, Learjets and having all hotel floors and bodyguards outside each room and all that rhubarb, you know, and limos for each person. You know, all getting one limo, one, one each, you know. And I, I used to shun all that because I couldn't stand all that. I, I could never sit in the back with a limo on my own. I that was just that was so naff. So I used to sit with the driver and get all the scoop on all the other bands. It was fantastic. You know, all the stories which they didn't get, sitting there in their own loneliness. <laughs> so I couldn't stand with that. But anyway, we, we, there was a level of success we'd, we'd hit, which was immense, you know, we were out in America doing you know, 10,000 seaters a night, you know, and it was, it was immense, you know. Um, so that was a great time. Um, I guess a bomber would have to be one because it was um, with a new lineup. Ken had left, David went there, and, and but we had great success in America, funny enough, with that. And um, it became um, top 40 in America. And we went out and toured with our friends Def Leppard, who were the biggest things you sliced bread out there then. You know, they were just coining it, mate. It was just unbelievable the success they had. And we were part of that role, which is good, you know. And, and if I have to, if anyone says to me, what's the favorite band you've ever worked with uh, on the road, ever, and it'll always be Def Leppard. They were gracious, they were kind, they were included us in everything, you know, they were just fantastic. All the boys were just brilliant. So that's that. I mean, I'd have to choose Outsider because um, it, it, it spoke to the press, it spoke to the, the fans in equal measure, which is great, you know, and, and I think that's, that's, that's really good. You know, and the songs that we do play on stage from that album really do connect. Um, and I think there's also, as long as satisfying the, 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 the fans have been with us all the years, it's bringing in an audience, which is great, 
you know, we played Kiev recently, and honestly, I thought it was a One Direction audience. It was just full of, you know, young girls. It just steps off a of Vogue magazine, you know, it's just unbelievable, right? And they know all the old songs and lyrics, and all the new too. So that, that's what. So that I think they their entry into Heap is probably through outside, and then they find all this other stuff, and then they, they grow with it, which is great. I could go back and choose another old one, but I think I'm going to go for Wake the Sleeper because we had a 10-year hiatus um, for recording. And it was a very important album to come back and make a statement. And I think we made a great statement with that album. We brought all the old fans and new fans back on track very quickly. Um, it was a situation where the business just went into free fall, didn't it? I mean, if you take two years before that album, the rope companies just, uh, you know, the internet came along, Napster came along. They took Napster to the court and they found out there's a thousand Napsters, you cannot police this. And by then, all the record companies were in free fall. They were disappearing, they were getting smaller, they were amalgamating. It was just a complete mess. And we couldn't find a home to record a new album in, 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 in that um, environment. We could have gone off and done one ourselves, but we didn't think that was right because we were a band with the amount of countries we tour in, which is 58 countries, we needed the support from the record company in all those countries when we tour there. So um, we, we did what we do best, we, we went out and played live. We um, recorded loads of live albums, let them out, live DVDs and stuff like that, and kept the band alive that way, you know, and um, until the, the industry settled down, and then we found a home with Universal at the time, I think, and we recorded Wake Sleeper. And it was just a big launch back in, you know, a mega launch back in. So I'll choose those five for now. July morning Looking for love With the strength of a new day dawning And the beautiful sun At the sound of the first bird singing was leaving for with the storm and the night behind me and the road of my
looking for love in the strangest places it wasn't a stone that I left unturned must have tried more than a thousand faces not one was aware of the fire that burned in my heart On a July morning, I was looking for love with the strength of a new day dawning and the beautiful sun, and at the sound of the first bird singing. Leaving for home with the storm and the night behind me, yeah, and the road of my own. With the day came the resolution. I'll be looking for you. La, la, la.
a true Uriah Heep epic. From Look At Yourself, that was July morning with, of course, the voice of the late, great David Byron. Now, it's 39 years ago that a collective by the name of Asia released a debut album which in the finest traditions of Rolling Stone magazine was savaged at birth. Pompous schlock in the grandest manner is what they said. Whilst for those of us who actually bought it, we just sort of put it on and basked in its epic grandeur. It went on to become the biggest selling album of 1982 in the US and to date it is en route to 5 million sales. Incredibly, by the way, never made the top 10 in the UK. Now, whenever anybody talks about this album or the band, what usually follows is someone playing Heat of the Moment. Well, here is where we differ.
John Wett and Steve Howe, Carl Palmer, Jeff Downs, brought together by John Kolodner. And in terms of the timing, it couldn't really have been any better, could it? Sticks, Journey, Boston, all very, very popular at the time. But Asia offerings something maybe of a higher quality, certainly in terms of songwriting and musicianship. Now, the tours played to huge arenas all over the US. The songs were on heavy rotation on MTV back in the early days. And then, of course, it's time for the follow-up. And how do you equal the success of that first album? Well, they didn't. But uh, in my humble opinion, Alpha, the second album, rather unfairly dismissed. Uh, it still went into the top ten in the US and had some great tracks on it. Uh, here's John Wedden, Steve Howe and Jeff Dans talking very briefly about what Alpha was. The only thing I can say is that if you did like the first album, you'll love the second one. Um, if you dislike the first one, then you won't like this one. Um, it's pretty much along the same lines as the, uh, the first album in construction. Uh, obviously, the songs are different, and that in itself is a progression. Uh, this album, um, I think it's more of a guitaristic album than the first. I think I've had longer to consider what the guitar must do on this album. I'm not blocked in or confused with the creation of a group now, which was very much the first album that surrounded with this. Like, it's not just creating an album, it's a group, it's what we're gonna do on tour. So a lot of those things are a lot easier now. I think the majority of the time has been spent on the songwriting, actually. Um, you've got a concept per, per se. We don't, <coughs> we don't actually work with a concept in mind. You know, the concept is the group, really. It's not you're going to write about, you know, a tree or something. You know, it's not that sort of stuff. They're uh, really heavily song-orientated now. We, that was what took us about six months just to write the songs for the album. And here's a reminder, just in case you forgot, how good some of the songs were on that album. Here is Don't Cry.
It was uh, Don't Cry by Asia from Alpha. The band started to splinter after that with various members leaving, coming back, leaving again. But back in 2008, the original quartet got back together again. And if you missed it, it's very much worth your while heading over to wherever you consume your music, be it a record store or one of the streaming providers, because the record company is putting together a package of all three of the reunion albums, along with one of the live albums as well. So it's Wet and How, Palmer and Downs. And if you never caught up with any of these albums, you'll be pleased to know that uh, ageless sound is still there. And if you close your eyes, you could almost be in 1982 again. So the three albums were Phoenix, Omega and Triple X and the live album there as well. They did record one more album with Sam Coulson. This was after Steve Howe left. It was the last album before, sadly, we lost John Wetton in 2017. And to conclude this, then, here is a track from the 2008 album Phoenix. It is called Never Again.
great stuff, isn't it? It just has that iconic Asia sound. It was from Phoenix, one of the three reunion albums with the original quartet, which are being repackaged in a deluxe box set. It also includes the live album as well. And hopefully in the next edition, we'll be talking to various members of Asia about this box set and their career. Now, to conclude today, another piece of new music. And it has a similar uplifting feel to it that Asia have got, really. It is from John Lodge. Of course, he's best known as being the vocalist, songwriter and bass player of the Moody Blues, who, like the rest of us, has been in lockdown over the last year. And whilst he's been there, he's been hard at work on new music. And this is the fruit of his labours. It will be part of an EP called On Reflection out later in the year. And this track is called The Sun Will Shine.
That was John Lodge. And that is it from me for this edition of the Classic Rock Podcast. Don't forget, you can catch up with all of the previous editions over at the website at www.theclassicrockpodcast.com. Thanks again for your company, and I'll see you next time. From me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now. (laughs) 